I had never been this frustrated ever. Never in my life could I remember the intense turmoil being so, I don't know, intense, I guess. There was no other way to put it, but it was just, I felt like there was this tornado just ripping on the inside of me. I was so frustrated. I felt so stretched. And I was out to lunch with some friends and and I had gotten to the point in, in weeks prior in prayer where I was beginning to wonder if I was no longer in the will of God. I don't know if you've ever you've ever had that thought before. If my life is not where it's supposed to be, I am not where I am supposed to be. And how terrifying that notion is. It was terrifying for me. It was terrifying for me to admit these feelings out loud to anyone because of the cost associated with them. The cost of admitting that I'm not in the plan and will of God anymore would be absolutely devastating. I loved my church. I loved where I was. And I felt like if I said out loud what I was, what I was really feeling on the inside, that it would set in motion something that would absolutely tip over my entire life. So as we sat down to lunch and pleasantries had been exchanged, and those of you that know me, I hate small talk. And once that was over, all of this stuff began to pour out. I was with people I trusted and all of this stuff on the inside began just to pour out of me. I remember explaining this internal conflict and and I was frustrated because every time other people had been in this level of frustration that I had been in, the burden had lifted, but the burden had not lifted off of me. They felt like the anointing to serve, the power to serve, the passion and the drive to serve had gone, but that had not happened with me. I was passionate. I loved my team. I loved my church. And every time I would go to minister, the anointing of God would just be so palatable. And God was using me in tremendous ways. And I remember my voice broke at the table as I said to God, you know, as I was also talking to my friends, I don't know how but God, something's got to change. And God, I don't know if you're trying to change my location or if you're trying to change me, but something's got to give. And it was at that lunch that the Lord revealed that the problem was not where I was serving, but who I was. I had to increase capacity. That's what had to happen if I was going to start feeling, thinking, and being different. And thus began a journey that changed my life. My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist. Well, hey, everybody. If you're wondering why we got such, I guess, pumped up and excited music, it's that we're back. I don't know if you're excited or as excited as me, but man, did I ever miss doing this? And did I ever miss the opportunity to have a chance to chat with all of you? Uh, as many of you know that uh, my wife and I, along with uh, brother and sister uh, Justin and Kimberly Ranking and Tamara Schultz from UBCI Youth Ministries, we went on an AYC trip to Zimbabwe and Botswana, and God did some amazing things in that trip. But I am so, so, so glad 
to be home. Now, of all the episodes that, you know, in this time of being away and not recording, I've been able to kind of take a look at where the podcast has gone and what content people seem to be engaging with. And of all the episodes that created the most, I don't know, buzz is the best word, but that's kind of the word that I can think of. It's the episode called How to Increase Capacity. That seemed to be the one that generated the most feedback and engagement out of everything that we've done to date. And it has opened the door for some incredible conversations with uh, other leaders that connected with the idea of increasing capacity. And that episode, How to Increase Capacity, came from this lunch conversation that I had that I talked about in the intro to uh, of this particular episode. And so I want to talk about capacity again, not to rehash old content, but to kind of drill down a little further on the types of things that we need to increase capacity on. And now I did have other content I was going to kind of bring out and push out, but I had some amazing conversations with uh, Ryan Franklin from the POA, as well as uh, Michael Enzi from CLC Heath in uh, Heath, Ohio, but formerly of UBCI Youth Ministries, aka General Youth Division. He was the um, uh, General Youth President there. And both Ryan and Michael, um, they just poured into me and we had some incredible conversations. So credit goes to you gentlemen for the inspiration for this episode. Now, if you have not listened, if you've not listened to part one, please go back and give it a listen because we're only going to brush on the idea of increasing capacity here. And for those of you that have listened, I'm going to give you a brief, brief recap of where that episode comes from. And so the basic premise of episode had increased capacity is this, the miracle is the Lord's, but the capacity is your responsibility. This is what God taught me in the subsequent weeks and months following that lunch conversation I had in the summer. And it comes from the story found in second Kings four, uh, the story of the widow and the oil where this widow meets Elisha and her husband is dead and the creditors are about to take her two little boys to be slaves. And so now not only has this woman lost her husband, but now her boys are going to be raised as slaves in another man's house. And this is heartbreaking. And so she meets Elisha and she says to him, your servant, my husband is dead. She's letting him know we were a part of the kingdom movement that you're trying to push forward. You, he, was, he was the one trying to restore the worship of God back in pagan Israel, but now he's dead and we need your help. And so Elisha says, what do you have in your house? And she says, nothing save a jar and some oil. And so Elisha said to her, go get more jars and pour out. And so that's what she did. She and her children went and they gathered jars from friends and neighbors and they took that, that little jar and they began to pour out into those other jars. And when all of the jars were full, the Bible says the oil stopped flowing. What that means is that God basically performed this supernatural, incredible miracle of duplicating the oil as there were empty jars to receive the oil um, as they were pouring out. Now, the point we took away from that story was this. The miracle was the Lord's, but the capacity was her responsibility. God's problem was to solve, God's problem to solve was the miraculous. So God had to duplicate the oil. 
God had to cause the oil to be multiplied. That's something she was powerless to do. That's something that no human being could do in a jar, make olive oil magically, miraculously reproduce itself. That, that's something that only God could do. God is performing an act of creation inside her original jar. Her problem to solve was the capacity problem. And it was the capacity to receive what God would give. And so during this season of intense, God-sparked internal turmoil, God revealed to me a paradigm-shifting principle that if I wanted more of the miracle, I had to give God more jars to work with. I had to increase my capacity. And as it turns out, this particular episode has resonated with uh, many of you too. And so today, based on some other great conversations I've had with awesome, other awesome leaders, I, I want to share some categories. I want to drill it down into this idea a little bit more of things we need to increase capacity in or on um, if we're going to see more of the miracle of God in our life and in our leadership. So if we're going to see God do only the things that only he can do, we've got to give God more of us to work with. So using the analogy of 2 Kings 4, today we're going to explore the areas where we need to give God more jars. And that's how we're going to identify the different categories of things that we have got to increase capacity on as leaders if we're going to see God provide growth and revival and uh, his power in our life and in the areas that he has called us to lead. And so as leaders, we have got to increase in two major areas. We've got to, there are two categories of jars, I guess, if you want to use the analogy that, that we got to give to God. The first is we have got to lead ourselves to greater capacity. So as individual leaders, there are things that we need to work on. I mentioned some of them in the first episode. They will also come in a later episode. We've got to talk about things like time management and discipline and how we handle um, our emotions, things like emotional intelligence. Those are all jars that we give to God where he can increase our capacity because um, that's how he can flow more through us. For example, you may be a great communicator and a great preacher, but you'll never be a great leader if you never learn how to tune in to the emotional turmoil that you have when you're in conflict, or you never learn how to pick up on the emotional cues of other people. So you're a great communicator, but if you want to be a great leader, you've got to increase your capacity for emotional intelligence. You've got to be an emotionally healthy leader. You've got to be a leader that is tuned in and can operate with empathy toward other people. That's a jar you would give to God. And then the second category of jars, and this is actually where, um, not to over-spiritualize it, but I really felt God was leading me to talk about, and that is we have got to lead our organizations to greater capacity. We've got to lead our organizations to greater capacity. Now, what do I mean by organizations? That is just a blanket word that I'm using for a local church, a department, or a team. An organization is simply a group of people that are uh, united together, tied together to accomplish a, you know, a common purpose or a common mission. So I'm going to use the word organization. And if you're a, you know, a senior pastor um, or an assistant pastor, you can put in church. If you are a department leader or, you know, you're a pastor of a department, like a youth pastor, you just put in youth ministry. Um, 
or if you lead in a kind of parachurch kind of ministry context, you're in, involved in, in a district organizational position, you can put that in there as well. Organization is just simply a blanket word. And so not only do we have to lead ourselves, I believe that's probably a self-evident truth to many of the leaders that are listening here, but we also have to lead our organizations to increase capacity. Now, this does not mean we have got to lead the people that we lead to greater capacity as individuals. That's maybe another topic for another time. I believe that's self-evident, that as leaders, we have got to grow the people that are underneath us. What I'm, what I'm talking about kind of, I guess if I can boil it down this way, is every organization has its own personality. So you've got the, you know, the individuals that make up your organization or make up your team. They are unique. But collectively, all together, the team has its own personality. Your church is a living, breathing organism. There's a collective mind that everybody kind of buys into when they come and serve. And uh, whether you call this culture, whether you call this groupthink, whatever you want to tie onto it, you can label it however, but it's on a team, in an organization, there is a culture of how things get done. The way we do things around here, that's the attitude, the emotions, the approach to getting stuff done that is part of the collective mind of the team. And I guess here's what I mean. If, if in your team there's a lot of creativity, a lot of spontaneity, not a lot of planning or organizational structure, a lot of impulse, let's go with the flow. And uh, when an idea sparks, we're going to just jump in and get it done. Well, even someone that is the most structured-minded person if they're going to serve well on the team, they have got to buy into that approach or that idea, no matter how strong of a J quality they have on their Myers-Briggs personality type. So there is this collective mind and will to organizations or to teams. And if we will see growth, revival, if we'll see the miracle flow, if we'll see God do what only he can do, we have got to increase the capacity of the organization in order to be able to maximize the miracle. This means not only do I need to increase my personal capacity, not only do I need to seek to increase the capacity of individual members of my team as people, but I also need to seek to increase the capacity of the collective team and organization. If we want to see growth, we have to work on the culture of the organization that we lead in. Now, you may be thinking, this sounds really complicated. Why does it have to be this complicated? Why not just work on me? You know, why not, you know, you know, follow me as I follow Jesus. Why not just, I work on me, I handle me, I grow me, and as people follow me, they will grow rightly. Not necessarily. This is not necessarily the case. I believe we've got to be more intentional than that. Because if all you do is work on you, and you don't infuse the organization with some capacity-increasing principles, if you don't teach them how to bring God more jars, if all you do is grow yourself, everything will ride on you. That The success of the organization will completely and totally ride on you. And then the I guess the greater question besides you burning out, being under a ton of stress, and then ultimately leading to resentment and an unhealthy attitude towards serving and leading. The broader question 
when all you do is grow yourself is what will happen when you go away. Because eventually we all have an expiration date that's over top of all of us. We're not going to live forever. God leads us through different seasons of life and seasons of ministry, and he may change locations on us. He may change, you know, areas of service on us. And if your entire organization rests upon you working and functioning on your highest capacity or at your highest capacity and not the collective increasing of the capacity of others and of the entire organization itself, if God calls you somewhere else, everything you've done will crumble because it's all been on your back. Number two, I believe more importantly, this approach is not biblical. It feeds our ego, but it's not good for the organizations that we lead. It's not the right way to be a leader. It feels good to be the superstar, doesn't it? I mean, especially if you're a high empathy individual, there's nothing greater than the feeling of coming in and saving the day, being the person that has the answers. You get to be the superhero, but that's not God's plan for his kingdom. God's plan is the long arc of discipleship. And so we want to not just increase our own capacity, but we want to increase the capacity of our organization because in doing so, we grow the people not only who serve alongside us, but we grow the people who we serve at the same time. And the reason we're doing all of this is because we want to increase the capacity of our organization so that we can reach more people and we can be more effective in doing so. We want to see more people impacted and we want to become better at impacting people. Because one day we know we are not going to be the leader anymore. Like I said before, there's an expiration date over top of every single one of us. And if we are going to see the organizations we lead, the teams, the departments, the churches that we lead become strong into the future, when we're not there, we have got to increase the capacity of our organizations. Now, this sounds like all kind of out there ideas to you. It's going to become really clear when we talk about the types of jars that our organizations must add to themselves to increase their capacity. And it's up to us as leaders to lead them to adding that jar. And the first jar is this, the jar of change and pain of growth. The jar of change and the pain that is associated with growth. Most people are creatures of habit. And uh, as a result, they, they don't like change unless it's their change. Those who say that they do like change usually are okay with change until you change the thing that they don't want changed. And then their hair is on fire. That's because most people like stuff to be the same unless they're the ones in charge of making all of the changes. And so as a result, with change, there is pain and grief. Now, I used to think of grief as something that only happened through traumatic events, but the fact of the matter is, Every time there is a transition in life, every time there is an alteration of what is normal, we grieve the loss of what was normal. And so that's why people become discombobulated when they change jobs. 
or when they go from high school to college or they go from elementary school to high school because grief is a loss of your normal. It's a loss of what was known, what was safe and what made you feel confident and secure. And in the apostolic church, because we are such a conservative movement, most of us are abundantly cautious when it comes to change. And maybe even at times, we tie our methodology to our theology, leading us to believe that if we change the how, we are also changing the who or the why. And this could lead to unhealthy friction within organizations, especially local churches, especially when methods change because people have spiritual experiences, they have fond memories. Most of our profound encounters with God are often tied to styles of music, programs, the look and feel of an environment. And anytime that gets altered, there can be a lot of friction that makes change feel very painful. And if we do not help people increase their capacity for change and for the pain that is associated with making changes, there will become an unhealthy fear of altering methods. And even at times, you will open up yourself to accusations that you are somehow changing truth or changing your theology or no longer loving the things you used to love because you have made massive changes in your organization without preparing people for them. And so again, we have got to increase the capacity of our organizations to handle change and the grief and sense of loss that comes with them. Because sometimes our methods and our approaches, how we do things around here, becomes no longer as effective as they used to be. Or worse, can no longer sustain us past a certain size or reach or level of impact. And so as a result, now this is an example from the local church, what brought us to 50 or 100 or 200 may be perfect to get us to 50 or to 100 or 200 and even maintaining that number. But if we want to grow beyond that, we have got to embrace new approaches. And this means putting to sleep legacy ministries and much-loved methods that have so many fond memories and experiences attached to them. Otherwise, we're going to get stuck. And since this will happen again and again and again and again in a healthy organization, we have got to increase our capacity for change. A suggested resource here is Leading Change by John Cotter. It's a great book. I suggest you get it. Now, practically, this means we have got to carefully and prayerfully lead our organization through rethinking change. We have got to increase their and our capacity for pain and the grief that is about to come. So how are we supposed to do that? Well, here's a few things. Number one, we've got to help people understand clearly the difference between our values and our methods our theology, and how we go about getting things done. 
Now, this is going to require strong communication. So strong preaching and teaching in the local church and strong vision casting in all other environments. And this has to happen before the change. So before the winds of change begin to blow, before people know what you're up to, you've got to give them the big why. And you've got to remind them what you stand for as a leader and what the organization stands for, what they value. And in the context of that, before they know what is coming, reassure them that no matter how much our methods change, the core of who we are and the foundation of what we believe, that never is going to be altered. Number two, we have to have plans for how change is going to be implemented. So don't just get an idea and then just on the spur of a moment, make a colossal organizational change. We have to have a plan for how we are going to go about making this change after we have cast compelling vision and reassured those that we lead. Number three, as we make the change, we have to let people grieve. We have to let people grieve. We have to make room for slow adopters. If you don't want people to be threatened by change, you cannot be threatened by their complaints or criticism. If you don't want people to be threatened by change, you can't be threatened by their complaints or criticism of your changes. You cannot tie loyalty to you as a leader to a particular methodological change. That will bring unnecessary toxicity into your organization. It has to be okay for people to disagree with you. You have to love and respect individuals despite their opposition, and you need to let them know that. Understand that not everybody is on board yet. Understand that not everybody is bought into this yet. And I want you to know that I don't take that as an act of disloyalty. I don't take that as a threat to you. I am not immune or not open to criticism. Create an environment where people can still not agree with the change and still be welcome and not thought ill of. So we have to let people grieve. There are going to be people that are going to take a while to jump on board because they're going to be grieving the change that you have made. Let them grieve that. As you move forward, let the slow adopters be slow adopters and refuse to be threatened personally by any criticism. Four, have lots of dialogue and be open to changing the change as you get feedback and buy-in. There's a good chance that you may not have thought of every blind spot. You may not have thought through every red flag. And so what you have to have is a clear win in mind and be open to making modifications as you dialogue with other people. And as long as you are accomplishing the win with as many people buying in as possible, that's what really matters. So if you want people to be okay with change, be okay with changing your change as you make it, if that makes any sense at all. But what, what happens is, is you may have even talked with your team, you may have even talked with you know the people that are close to you, but as you are making a change within your organization, there may be people that are not leaders, but they're stakeholders, and they may raise some valid questions. Don't be afraid to alter course as long as we're accomplishing the ultimate spirit-directed win that God has given us that sparked the change, that's all.
that matters. Number five, tie all change to principles. Tie your change to a big why that everybody can all get behind. So not everyone can agree with how you're going about doing it, but if we can all agree that why we're trying to do it matters, you will save yourself a lot of problems. So people may not be on board with your small group idea, but if you can help them be on board with the idea that everyone needs a place to belong, well, that's half the battle. And so people will say then, it won't be a strong opposition, people may say then, well, you know, that's not how I would do it, but I understand the intention is good. And as long as somebody is a healthy individual and they're not a divisive person, there are lots of people that if they understand the why and what, why you're trying to do what you're trying to do, even if they disagree, they will understand, empathize, and stand with the reason behind your, and the intention behind your actions. Jar number two. The second jar every organization needs to bring to God in order to, in order to see a miracle of growth and the kingdom being expanded within it is the jar of a healthy team. And right away, if you've never read The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, you need to go out and you need to buy that book right now. It is an amazing book by Patrick Lencioni. There are so many gimmicky things that people do to try to make their teams better. Trust falls, building towers out of popsicle sticks. Um, I hate that kind of stuff. It's such a waste of time. And here's what's great. You don't have to do any of that stuff at all. I mean, unless you want to, unless you think it's fun. If it's fun to your team, then by all means, you know, build popsicle stick towers. Hopefully let everybody eat the popsicles first because then it's a party, you know. If that kind of stuff is fun to you, then go for it. But that kind of stuff does not a healthy team make. What makes a healthy team is when people work together and they're passionate about accomplishing the same mission and vision. That's what a healthy team is. A healthy team is when people love working together and they're extremely passionate about the work that they are doing. So how can we create the healthy team and make sure no one is concussed by any trust falls? Number one, understand this principle. Leaders want to lead. Leaders want to lead. So allow them to find ways to make it happen without being micromanaged. People want to feel heard, they want to feel empowered, and they want to feel part of the decision-making process. And so let people feel like they are a part of the decision-making process. Have an environment where your team gets to contribute to making the decision and disagreeing with the decision and buying into the decision, all of the dialogue about it. If all your leadership is top-down, heavy-handed, then there's going to be um, not a whole lot of passion about the results because every idea that's been shared has been yours. Leaders want to lead, and so if you want a healthy team, create an environment where leaders get to lead, where people can take the big idea or people can take the vision and they get to decide how they're gonna make it happen in some way. Number two, Healthy teams are teams that are not afraid of open conflict and unfiltered debate. Can people question and disagree with you? If the answer is no, chances are you have a passive-aggressive, unhealthy team. 
One of the things I've discovered is that the church is bad at conflict. The church can be awful at conflict at times. Religious organizations are awful at conflict because it's drilled down within us that we're all supposed to be nice. And that means we'll affirm and we'll rubber stamp ideas. And then in the words of Patrick Lencioni, go into the parking lot after the board meeting or after the department meeting and be like, that was the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Except here's what you're doing. You're in the parking lot bearing a knife into somebody's back and creating division and dissension on the team when what we should have had was an environment for somebody to lean across the table and say to that person, I understand your heart's in the wrong right place, but I just think that that's the wrong move. I don't think that that decision makes any sense at all, and I can't stand with it. I'm not for it. We have to have unfiltered debate. We have to have the ability to have open conflict for people to disagree. And even at times for things to get heated, and as long as it doesn't get personal, as long as you know we're not digging in the knife into someone's character or digging in the knife into someone's you know talent or who they are as a human being, we're keeping it about the issue, that's okay. It's okay to have conflict like that. One of the most incredible experiences I ever had was when I was uh, with Brother Tim Zuniga and Billy Haley at their church in Nashville, Tennessee, and I got to sit on one of their staff meetings. And that is a culture where they have unfiltered debate. There is a debate over how something should be executed. And I was like, I had never, I have never heard church people and, and leaders in a meeting like this be willing to so openly disagree with one another. And it wasn't done in an unhealthy way. It was done in a godly way. It was done in a way that preserved everyone's dignity and character. And I remember walking away from that meeting at that church thinking that is the type of environment that I want my church, that I work in to be. Because when everybody feels heard, even if a decision is made that they don't agree with, chances are you're going to have total unity once the decision is made because people feel heard. And so after you've had the, unhealth, after you've had the unfiltered debate and the open and healthy conflict, everyone needs to stand in total unity once that decision is made and defend it as if it was their own idea. Number three, if you want to have a healthy team, there can be no silos. Silos are great for grain, but they're bad for people. And while a ministry or a department will have different areas of emphasis, we need to be united around the same vision. Competition between teams builds distrust. It creates a toxic environment. And this is going to need constant work. We've got to always be working on making our teams better and more unified. Number four, if we're going to give God the jar of a healthy team, there needs to be accountability. There needs to be accountability. Everyone has got to be on the same level. If people get a pass because they're family or long-standing team members or your buddy, that's a toxic environment. Accountability for results must be essential for every member. So if you'll call one person on the carpet for not delivering and not another person, you're creating distrust on your team. And leaders, you set the tone on this. You set the environment for this. You've got to be willing to admit wrong and be humble, even if your current team culture is completely and totally afraid and terrified of that. You've got to take that first step and be open 
and admit wrong and be humble and allow people to disagree with you. My, my father is amazing at this. He is such an incredible leader, but there is no ego in our team meetings. No ego. Despite the fact that he is the most experienced and the most capable on our team, as the senior leader, he lets and opens up his actions to the critique of those on his team simply because he knows it's good for the team. So he's open, he's humble, and he's unafraid to have conflict. Sometimes what we do is we wait till we can't take it anymore, and then we just kind of like let it explode when it's you know time to bring down the hammer. That's, that, that's, the, that's the wrong environment to have a healthy team in. We've got to be willing to have the awkward and uncomfortable conversations well before the hammer comes down. If we create an environment of strong accountability, people, if they're unable to deliver or if something is a poor fit on the team, they will remove themselves because they don't want to let the team down. Often, when it comes time to drop that hammer, they will know that hammer is coming and it won't be a surprise because nobody has avoided the tough conversation with them. There's nothing greater that you can give to God, that you can give to your church or your organization than the jar of a healthy team. And working on your team's health is something that requires ongoing work and ongoing effort, but the fruit of that is so rewarding. The third jar you've got to lead your organization to add to its culture is the jar of systems and processes or processes, however you'd like to say it. The jar of systems and processes. I want to read to you a couple of paragraphs from an incredible book uh, called How to Break Growth Barriers. And it inspired me so much when, when I read this, especially this introduction. It's by Carl F. George and Warren Bird. And, and, and here's, the, here's the narrative that they give us. It says, go with me to a country just hit by a devastating earthquake where 50,000 people are injured or dead. Two almost identical teams, each headed by a doctor or being airlifted into the heart of the disaster area. The physician leading the first crew steps out of the helicopter and is immediately overwhelmed by all of the carnage. There, barely 10 paces away, workers are pulling a mangled but living body from the rubble. Moved with compassion, the doctor rushes over and calculates the personnel, equipment, facilities needed to help this victim. He assigns half his medical team and half of their supplies to work on this person. A handful of survivors, sensing the availability to help, bring the physician another case, and this person is in even worse condition. The doctor assigns the rest of his medical team and resources to care for this person. Now the doctor faces a worse dilemma than when his helicopter touched down. So he would like to treat 49,998 more people, but has expended virtually all of his resources on the first two bodies presented to him. The only solution he decides is to make himself even more available, and he resolves that he and his staff will push themselves harder. They will be on call 20 hours a day, seven days a week, to treat as many individuals as possible. Unfortunately, a few weeks later, this well-intentioned medic is forced to return home. His body has not been able to keep pace with his desire to help. With his resistance lowered by overextending himself, he has caught one of the disease that is, diseases that is so rampant in this disaster area. The care he 
and his team have provided must come to a standstill until his replacement arrives. Now, meanwhile, meanwhile, what is the second team doing? Well, their preliminary assessment likewise takes only a matter of moments. They too are deeply shocked and moved with compassion toward the massive death and pain evident in every direction. They see widespread malnutrition, open wounds, and other horrible conditions. People are suffering and dying before their very eyes. The physician heading this second unit quickly concludes that her small group is by itself inadequate. So instead of scooping up the first person inside and immediately beginning treatment, this doctor opts for a different plan. She calculates a strategy that will touch a maximum number of people in the least amount of time using the scarce resources available to them. The doctor announces to her team, let's train some people as life support engineers. One group will make sure safe drinking water is available. Another will deal with shelter issues and another with food. Yet another group will work on waste control and public health by repairing the citywide sewer system to take fecal matter off the streets before it mixes with the water supply or spreads into homes. This relief and preventative care multiplied through the disaster area will stop the growth of infection and allow the medical intervention to have greater impact. Having mapped out a program to provide the essentials of survival and reduce infectious agents, the doctor addresses issues of proper nutrition and other preventable forms of need. In the meantime, her medical team begins training the healthier survivors to serve as health officers. Their focus is on remedial and interventional care, starting with the people who have treated have the best prognosis for recovery. Everyone in the disaster area is keenly aware that a very practical reason exists for giving priority to those who are getting well. The need is of such tremendous proportions that if every additional able-bodied worker can help, they'll make a significant difference. Which team, they then write, would you choose? Which team do you want to be a part of? Suppose you are a typical North American pastor or Christian leader involved in spiritual work and you were supposed to watch the above-described scenario and be asked which of the above medical teams is more caring, which would you choose? Now remember, both teams had equally strong feelings of love and compassion, but they differed only in how they showed their concern. Now when I read this, I was completely blown away because I saw myself in the first medical team. And I don't know about you, maybe you have already got all this figured out. Maybe you've already kind of decided how you're going to roll. And so as a result, you have chosen the method of the second medical team. But growing up, what I had heard idolized was people that behaved and acted, leaders that, that led their life and their family much like the first medical team, and as a result, paid an incredible physical, spiritual, and emotional toll. And for the longest time, I felt that was how it was supposed to go. But then I was confronted with the idea that people that used systems and processes in order to get the job done were often more effective and their burden was not any less than mine. Then I ran across this shocking statistic that, that a high-performing pastor, a high-performing pastor who is full-time without any credible family or other ministry responsibilities can grow a church to about a maximum of 75 people. 
and that the average pastor, he can grow a church to about 50 people. Now, what is the average size, do you think, of a church in North America? Well, it's about 50 to 75 people. So what some have said is that in order to grow, you need to add another pastor, another full-time, salaried, all the benefits pastor. But I need to ask you a question. Does that sound like a sustainable solution? One full-time shepherd for every 50 souls. Does that sound like good stewardship to you? More importantly, does this sound even remotely biblical to you? See, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 says, He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The role of leadership is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This doesn't mean that we are to equip the saints and then we are to go do the ministry. It means that we are to equip the members of the church so that they may go out and do the work of the ministry. The primary role of leadership is to equip others to serve. We are to build other people so that they may serve, especially when we want to see the church grow. It's our job to strengthen the hands of those that are a part of our organization so that they can go out and do the work. And then the church, the team, the department, the organization can grow beyond the limits of a single leader. I don't want to be the lid. I don't want to be the lid of anything that I lead. So what I need to do is I need to strengthen the hands of all of those around me so that they can help grow the organization beyond my limitations. And this is where systems come in. See, systems and processes do one of two things in the local church. They, they ensure people are ministered to consistently, and then they provide people an opportunity to serve in the kingdom of God. So systems and processes in a local church and in any team, really, they ensure people are served consistently and with excellence, and number two, they provide opportunities for people to serve, even though those people may not be the leader. So the leader, they got to come up a lot of times with ideas. The leadership team has to come up with the ideas. They got to be the creative people. They got to be the vision casting people. Not everybody has that gift, but some people just want to serve. So systems and processes are when the leaders, the senior leader, the leadership team, they come up with what must be done and they create a systematic way of getting it done so that those that want to serve the mission can serve the mission by just plugging in to the right spot. So let me give you some examples of some systems and processes that need to be part of a local church, and that's because the local church is the most experience I have. We have to have a discipleship process. So how will we teach new believers? What do we need to teach new Christians that will help them mature? And then how can we make sure that that same content is taught to everybody? That's what a discipleship process is. Now, people may say, oh, one size doesn't fit all. Everybody's a unique individual. The fact of the matter is everybody needs to know the same stuff. They need to know the same basic theology and the same spiritual practices that will help them be a mature Christian. And then, however God leads and grows and directs their life and wherever they are gifted to flourish and serve in ministry, they are able to do so. 
Number two, we got to talk about systems of follow-up. How are we going to care for people? How are we going to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks? This is one of the things that, you know, my dad, I watched him reinvent his whole ministry at 40. He became pastor of a church larger than the one that he had left. And people were falling through the cracks. And so he went to the word of God and asked the Lord, how can I, how can I make sure that people are taken care of? And how can I make sure that people's needs are being met? Because I can't do it all on my own. The body must be equipped to care for itself. We see this story with Jethro and Moses, and you can read the the story in Exodus. We have to have a system for how everyone will be cared for. We have to make sure that everyone is looked after. And if that's a burden you try to carry on your own, as a leader, you are going to burn out. Even if you try to spread the care to a few different high-performing individuals, you will burn those individuals out. We have to find a way to get as many people involved in the process of taking care of each other as possible. Practically, this means like, how are we going to handle funerals? How are we going to handle weddings? How are we going to handle baby showers? In our church, we handle them through small groups. Small groups, small groups are the key for us. So wedding showers, baby showers, those things, even hospital visits, those things aren't centralized. They're taken care of through small groups where people can rally around their individuals that are suffering or celebrating in their small group and meet their practical needs and thus allow the pastor to focus on leading, preaching, teaching, casting vision, and the really, really big stuff that only he can handle. So we've got to increase the capacity for the body to care for itself. We're going to teach people how to minister to one another in crisis. We've got to answer the question of how we will provide community and foster relationships because once a church breaks 100 people, those people must find connection within a smaller group within the whole if they are going to not feel lost in the crowd. Tyler Whaley said this, and I felt it was an amazing, amazing statement. Your church is already grouping. You just don't own the group. And if we could find a way for your organization, your ministry department, or your church to own the group, we can add more people to the group, multiply the groups, and become more effective at caring for individuals. And these things have got to be turned into systems and processes. They cannot be just spontaneously created. There has to be a process of training leaders. There has to be a process of what makes our system developed, of how groups are launched, what makes a group, how are we going to track and hold people accountable. You have to think through all of those elements in order to make sure that every group is effective. The jar of systems and processes. So we've talked about groups. We talked about pastoral care. What about follow-up on members? We have to have uh, a system of creating leaders, a system to develop worship services, a process that we put projects through in order to see them through to completion and make sure that we execute them with a high degree of excellence. A systems approach to any organization will produce massive impact. Whatever you can systematize or turn into a process, you are going to increase the impact of your organization. 
you dramatically increase your team's ability to scale growth. Systems help us scale growth. Systems increase your capacity to handle continual and sustained reaching of people. This is going to require massive internal change in the life of a leader if this feels uncomfortable to you. Because we've mentioned this before, not to belabor the point, it's fun to be the hero. It's fun to be the person that can answer the questions. It's fun to be the one that is sought out and the hero of the organization. It's fun to be a celebrity amongst a small group, but we're not called to be celebrities. We're called to be servants. But a process-driven church, despite how fun it is to be the guy that wears the cape or the girl that wears the cape, a process-driven organization crucifies the cult of personality and the idol of religious celebrity that we are so often addicted to in North America. And it creates an environment where many people can grow and serve and thus many people be reached. When we cease to make it all about us and we become an organization that is driven by vision and values and a process as opposed to a personality we will see the reach and the impact of our organizations grow. Organizations that are built around the most talented people collapse when those most talented people leave. And I believe in top talent. I think it's great that everyone on your team, it'd be great if everyone on your team was the best performing person that had ever lived and had ever performed in that particular area. But that's often not the case. More importantly, it's, that's not ideal. But when you have a systems and process approach that is built around vision and a passionate team, then no one person is solely responsible for the growth other than the one who's working the miracle and pouring the oil in your jars. A vision-directed, process-driven church or organization becomes bigger than only one person, and it sustains itself into the future. So anything, again, anything that can be turned into a process should be turned into a process, whether that's services, programs, events, how people sign up for stuff. Now, if you already got great processes in your organization, number one, be constantly improving. And two, constantly be thinking about scalability. How can this work if we double? How many leaders do I need? If this won't work anymore when we double, how can I modify what we're doing so that the essence of it stays the same, but the new version of it is more scalable? Three, always be evaluating. Are we effective? Are we doing what we set out to do? The reason why I'm saying that, even if you have systems and processes, is what got you here may not get you there. The methods and things you did to get, us, get you to the moment you're in right now may, may not be the thing at all, that gets you to the next level. And so you need to be evaluating your systems and processes constantly. Well, if there's one thing that I know, it's this. That God wants his church to grow. There's one thing that I've ever learned about the Lord in the process is that God loves pouring himself out into people that are trying to do their best to give him more to work with. God loves when people take great steps of faith, when they push themselves beyond what they feel their limits are and try to grow. 
God delights in targeting those types of people and those types of organizations and doing amazing things with them. One of the most incredible illuminations or revelations that I had about this whole story is that when this woman obeyed God and she added more jars, she increased her capacity, Elisha came back and he said to the woman, I want you to go sell those jars and I want you to take the profit from those jars and you and your sons live on the rest. This this is what it tells me. That she increased her capacity for a need and in response to her obedience, God took care of her future. I'm here to declare over some team, some organization, by faith and from what I know in the word of God, that if you will increase your capacity for the need that is in front of you, God will pour out a miracle in your life so great so profound that he won't just solve the problem but he's going to put your team on the path of his destiny and he's going to take care of your future i declare that over your life in jesus's name so as leaders as we grow ourselves let's grow the teams we lead let's grow the departments that call us boss let's grow the organizations that call us pastor because there's a miracle coming our way. It's a miracle so great, it's not just gonna solve a problem, it's gonna take care of our future too. Well, thank you so much for listening. I so appreciate all of the love and the support that I have received over the past few months that this podcast has been live. I believe we got some great things we're gonna be exploring together and some great people we're gonna be talking to over the next coming weeks and months. But till next time, thank you so much for listening. Y'all have a great day.